Welcome to the Men's Global Livestream. If you're joining us for the first time, I want you to hold two spots, one in Titus chapter three, one in 2 Corinthians chapter five, if you have a Bible. And I wanna encourage you also to download the notes because that'll serve as a roadmap for where we're going. And when we're done, you can go reteach that to your men's group or, or at your church. We are starting a new series today called Dominant Force. Okay, so just think about those two words. What comes to your mind when you think of dominant force? Maybe you're like me, maybe you think athletically. You know, I was just watching the documentary on Michael Jordan called The Last Dance again, and I just kept saying to myself, this guy, he's just so dominant, you know? It's just a dominant force, and what do I mean by that? It's just, when he's on the court, he just takes over control. I mean, isn't that what a dominant force does in any space? It comes in and it dominates. What does that look like? It just takes over control. And I'm watching this documentary and, and episode after episode, and I'm just looking at uh, a man who plays a game. And not only does he take over the games that he plays in, right, but he takes over the game, like the NBA as an entity, as an organization. And it's just truly a good picture of someone who was a dominant force. Now, there are other pictures. We will get into that of what a dominant force looks like. But for me, that was the easiest way to just kind of go, yeah, it's when someone or something just comes into a space and takes over control. It's more powerful, more influential than other people and other driving forces for whatever is inside a space or inside a person's life. And we're gonna talk about right now just kind of three important things. This is just kind of for context. Why, why, what's important to know about a dominant force? One is there's a continuum uh, of that force, okay? A dominant force can be good on one side or bad on the other. It can be helpful on one side. It can be hurtful on the other. It can be positive on one side or it can be negative on the other, all right? So we have to realize that, that a dominant force can be good and bad, all right? Secondly, a dominant force is primary. What do I mean by that? It subsumes or takes over all other driving forces. Here's, here's, here's what I mean by that. A guy might be married and have kids and a family, and that drives him to go to work and provide for his family, okay? That's a driving force. But if the guy has an anger problem, chronic anger problem, that anger problem becomes the dominant force in that family and providing for his family and going to work kind of gets subsumed and dominated by that primary force in the family dynamic, okay? So there's a continuum. A dominant force is primary, all right? It subsumes all other forces. And then third, it can be someone, it can be something, or it can be some experience. For example, in my family, right? Alcoholism was the dominating force for a season most of my childhood, okay? It was, it was there were other things going on in the family, but man, that alcoholism thing, that subsumed all other things that was going on. In 30 years of ministry to men, another example, could be either the absence of a dad or no dad. 
the acceptance or non-acceptance or approval of a dad um, pervading the life of a man. That could be a dominant force, just my experience. Hundreds of thousands of evaluations at every man conferences tell me that this is a dominating force. It pervades a man's self-perception, okay? It, it influences his relationships and how he's built on the inside. It takes over the drives of his life. That's just another example of what a dominant force could be. And many times, uh, being a mental health worker myself, it could be a trauma, something really powerful and intense, right, that affects us either physically or emotionally, right, in our past that becomes the dominating force. It could be, if you're active or retired military, it could be combat, could be PTSD, and there's so many forms of PTSD, you know, post-trauma, and it creates just an internal malaise and becomes a dominant force. It changes the the trajectory of your life. So um, a dominating force can be someone, something, or some experience. Important to know those three things. Now, let's pivot. Why is this important to us as Christ followers? Well, first of all, whatever the dominant force of your life is, okay, whether that's God or some trauma or some positive, it takes over your self-perception and your decision-making, right? It, it just takes control, right? That's what a dominant force does. It takes control. It's pervasive. So that's super important. If you're a Christ follower, right, and he's the dominant force, he's going to take over control. If, it's, if you're a Christ follower and there's something else going on in your life that is battling for control of your life, it's it may be affecting your self-perception and becoming the axis of your decision-making even though Christ is in your life. And so there's spiritual warfare, okay? So that's first of all. Second of all, the Bible says unequivocally that God wants to be the dominant force in your life. He wants to be the commanding force. He wants to be the prevailing force. He wants to be the controlling factor over all dimensions in your life. So there's a little bit of context, a little bit of foundation. Here's where we're going. Today we're going to look at the basis and foundation of God being the dominant force in our lives, all right? Then in the sessions to follow, we're going to look and see how his person and his presence and the ultimate nature of God reinforces and sustains that dominating control in our life. And that's a good thing, a good kind of dominating force. So let's get started. Let's take out our notes. What we want to do to establish the, the foundation and basis of God being the dominant force is to do two things. One, let's see God act, and then let's hear God speak. And so let's look at a couple passages, one in Genesis, one in Job. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 uh, one through three says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. Okay, so we see 
the creator, a blank canvas, the power of God, the spirit of God hovering that's ready to animate uh, his will. And then God calls into being things that don't exist. We'll unpack that in a second. But I want us to look uh, at seeing God speak. We see God act in Genesis chapter 1. And that is a basis for God being the dominant force in your life, right? Because he's our creator. But then I want you to see God speak to a man, all right? And this conversation, it's a rough one, but God expresses his heart for why Job, in this case, uh, should keep it quiet. He says this, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. Then the Lord said to Job, do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I've said too much already. I have nothing more to say. <laughs> it's, it's so... Interesting when a man realizes the gap between himself and God. And so what we want to do from just seeing God act in creation and seeing God speak to a man, let's make some simple observations. When God comes into any space, okay? Number one, he expects the fulfillment of his intentions, Okay, God comes into a space. He wants to create. That's what we see in Genesis 1. Things start coming into being which previously do not exist. And God said, let there be light. What does he expect? Something's going to come into being. All right. Number two, he expects positional humility. Okay. So when you see God talk to Job, he positions himself as the creator the one who commands the morning, that commands the dawn to know its place, which means that he set this spinning blue ball exactly where it needs to be, positioned from the sun on a specific axis at the perfect distance so that it can spin and revolve around the sun and the dawn knows its place. And that should humble him, right? Creator, creator. And the Bible does this a lot to remind us of the gap, right? There's, there's creator and created, okay? Like we see here in Genesis 1 and in Job 38. But in the New Testament, there's vine and branch, right? Big gap, shepherd and sheep, big gap, right? Teacher and apprentice, big gap. Master and servant, big gap. Savior and saved, big gap, right? Precious treasure, jar of clay huge gap, right? Now, that that instant gap and the juxtaposition of who God is and who we are, that produces positional humility, right? That means he's who he is and you're not him and you're who you are. One person is in the A position, the other person is in the B position. All right, let's look at the third thing God expects. God expects implicit trust, right? So if he's the creator and he has 
an intention for who he creates or what he creates. And he has a vision for how that's supposed to develop and grow and mature and play out. Then you trust the creator as the created. That is fundamental and that is the basis, the first basis for having a relationship with God. Number four, he expects unqualified and immediate obedience, right? And that's usually the case when someone knows more. I mean, just pick your hobby. I don't care. Golf, bass fishing, electric guitar, uh, whatever you love to do. Then find the number one person in the world in your little hobby or your interest. And let's say you got to spend 30 minutes with that person. Who would do most of the talking and who would do most of the listening? Right? The person who knows more, right? You're, you're just a rookie, or maybe you're pretty good, but you're not as good as they are. So you, you got two of these and one of these, and this is closed and those are open, all right? So God expects unqualified and immediate obedience. This is not on your notes, but right down next in the margin, Deuteronomy 29, 29. It says this, the secret things belong to God, but that which is revealed belongs to us that we may follow all the words of this law. So whenever God speaks, he expects, since he's revealing something as God, if he speaks something, he expects us to follow what he says, okay? Now, we see this worked out in Christ. We see these dynamics worked out in Christ, but I wanted to point out one in Luke chapter six, verse 46. Just listen closely to what Jesus says to his guys. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I mean, this is exactly what we're talking about. It's like, Jesus is like, I'm in this space, I'm God, okay? You're calling me Lord, Lord, but there isn't implicit trust. There isn't positional humility. I have intentions that I desire to fulfill, but I'm not getting unqualified and immediate obedience. So there's your identity that you claim, which is, you call me Lord, Lord, there's your identity, but the activity is disconnected from your, your claimed identity. Ooh, man, okay. And so we kind of see God's heart as the creator, as God, kind of come out with those who claim his name, right? So just as a summary headline in all of this, let's, let's just kind of state a truth, and it's this. Write this down. My life in God will never outperform my view of God. My life in God will never outperform my view of God. Jesus confronts his guys. Well, if I'm Lord, Lord, then you're gonna do what I say. There's positional humility. If I'm Lord, Lord, and you're not, there's positional humility. There's implicit trust. When I speak, I expect my intentions to be fulfilled, and I don't need to pre-qualify what I say because I am who I am. I'm wiser, I'm smarter, I'm the creator, I have an intention, I have a vision. And this is what I expect, right? But you have to view God accurately, right? To live in God meaningfully, okay? So that's, that's for starters, okay? That's kind of foundation block one. Let's move to foundation block two because God's more 
than just a powerful person who's wiser and smarter and has more strength and more knowledge, okay? Um, he's more than just that, all right? We go to Titus chapter three, one of the passages that I told you to put a finger on. It says this, which is gonna add to the foundation. Listen in for it. For we were also once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is a powerful, personal, relational passage that resets our view of God in very specific ways that adds to the foundation that, that he is creator, he's God, he's positionally higher than me, he expects because of that position implicit trust, and he doesn't have to qualify what he says. We should do what he says, but there's more, and that goes to how he's acted on our behalf. Let's just kind of tick through those. Number one, he's kind toward me. He is kind. You know, when someone's kind toward you, it changes the way you view them. It's not transactional. That's kindness makes it personal. Number two, he is loving toward me. And not just loving, warm, fuzzy, hug loving, like, sacrificially loving us through the giving of his only son. You ever had somebody sacrificially love you? That resets your view of them. Okay, so God is who he is, but he's kind, he's loving. Number three, he is merciful with me. What, is, what does that mean, that God is merciful? The passage talks about it was according to his mercy. Right? That, that means that, that you and I, we don't get what we do deserve. Holy God, sinful man, holy judges sinful, but because of his mercy, mercy, we don't get what we do deserve, which is punishment and an eternity separated from God because of our own spiritual genetics and private rebellion against him. Okay, number four, he is gracious with me, which is different than mercy. Mercy is I don't get what I do deserve, right? We deserve this, but we don't get it, and God is merciful. Grace is when God extends his grace toward us, we do get what we don't deserve. We get an identity in him, we become a child of God, we become the inheritors of every spiritual blessing, and on and on and on. The, God's word highlights over 30 things that instantly come toward us just because we're in Christ. We didn't do anything to deserve it, it's all a product 
of his grace, right? And so can you see how we're not just creations of God and he's the creator and there's this big gap and we should be humble and we should trust our creator and we should have this attitude like God doesn't need to qualify himself when he when he speaks, we should, we should do what he says because he's him and we're not. But then you add this layer of, you know what, he's more than just a powerful and more powerful and an omnipotent and omniscient person in my life. He's also kind and loving and merciful and gracious toward me. And that even more just builds this foundation for God being the dominant force in my life. You know what, my life verse is um, Psalm 40 verses one through three and, and here's verses one and two of Psalm 40. It says this, he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. That is a picture of unilateral rescue. What does that mean? Someone's floating in a raft on an open ocean, okay? They are helpless, okay? Until a ship appears and someone sees them. Now, that person in the raft is at the mercy of the person who sees them. They can keep going or they can, they can go rescue that person, right? Someone stuck in a pit they can't get out of. Think about it. Mountain climber falls, breaks their leg, can't move. You get the picture, right? Helper, helpless, right? Unilateral rescue. You and I were in the slimy pit of sin and selfishness and under the grip of Satan. And God he rescued us and he lifted us out of the slimy pit and set our feet on a rock, right? We couldn't get out of our own way. We couldn't save ourselves. And so God came and he rescued us in Christ and then he gave us a firm place to stand, a firm identity, right? A firm word, a firm spirit. He told us who we are and when we knew who we were, now we know what to do, we're solid in God, and that's what he did. So, whereas when we're looking at God's power and the gap between us, my life in God will never outperform my view of God, when we look at God's kindness and, and, and loving action toward us and his mercy and his grace, all right, let's make another observation. My life in God should reflect my experience with God. What's your experience with God? The Bible tells us what our experience is with God. Right? So we have a view of God that he's who he is and we're not. That is a foundational basis of God being a dominant force. But my experience with God, experiencing his kindness, love, mercy, and grace, that becomes the dominating motivation in my life to be thankful and to let my life be a full-on thank you to God. So why should God be the dominating force? Let's review, because God's the creator and he has an intention and a vision and he's more powerful than we are, but it's more than that. He's been so good to us and that demands 
a dominating love and loyalty inside of us, right? That's, that's how we feel. Like he does that for us. Man, there's nothing we can't do for him. And then what does the application, if I really understand who God is and then what he's done for me, when I really, what's the application of that look like from God's perspective, okay? So let's see in scripture what the application of that looks like uh, in terms of our response and how that's connected to him being a dominating force in our life. Uh, first passage is 2 Chronicles 69. Um, let's read it together. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So he's the creator, he has the intention, he has the vision. We get who he is. We, we then experience with him love and kindness and mercy and grace. And what, what does the application of, of him being a dominant force look like? Man, he's got our whole heart. Right? He's got our complete loyalty inside. All right, let's look at another passage. Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 to 39. This is Jesus talking. It says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross fall and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So not only does God ask for an inner dominance, right, and affection and love and loyalty toward him, but he's also asking for relational place. I'm number one, I'm your highest allegiance. Oh, and by the way, if you make me your highest allegiance, I'll make all these other relationships work really well, but you gotta choose me. You gotta choose my will in the context of you being relationally connected to wives and sons and daughters, but you gotta make me your number one relationship. And there's easy ways to know that. So. Not only is God a part of your life, he's got your whole heart. He's got all of your relational allegiance. Let's look at the third scripture when Jesus says this, Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, now there is, there's, that's, not, that's not inner dominance, that's your whole heart. That's not relational dominance. I'm, I'm number one, but that means that I'm willing to risk everything, even discomfort, right, for this relationship, right? Because when, I mean, that means somebody's gotta die. I mean, when you say pick up your cross, the instrument of the cross meant something's gonna die, right? And that's what the Bible teaches. We'll actually get into that a little bit, but let's summarize Okay, when we ask the question, God's in a man's life, is God an accessory or is God everything? Okay, well, we see words from God's word that tell us there is an inner dominance. He's got the whole heart. He's looking for it. He expects it based on who he is and our experience with him. There's also a relational priority. It's Jesus first, even with your wife. You know, even with your kids, just like, sorry, Jesus is first. This is the way I'm going to act. And actually, that should turn into a blessing for them as you put Jesus first and you become like Jesus. 
in your character, and then your conduct expresses Jesus to your wife and kids. And then it becomes ultimate life dominance. I'm willing to lay down my life. I'm willing to give up things in order to see Christ come about in my life. So let's make three observations based on those passages. Number one, God has primary influence. It's pervasive. It subsumes all other driving forces and other things and informs them, okay? So God has primary influence. Number two, God has primary authority, okay? That means when, when he talks, I do. I mean, there's an instant kind of reaction when there's, there's a command structure and someone has a, not just the responsibility to guide your life and be the dominating force, but has the authority to do it because of his position and our experience with him, God has the authority. And this is where we get into a lot of spiritual battle. There are, are a lot of voices in our lives, uh, inside, in culture, uh, and, and in the realm of spiritual warfare that want to attack that dominating factor of having a relationship with God. What or who has authority in your life? In other words, in the end, when the chips fall, you're doing what they say versus what you feel like, versus what someone else says, what man says, versus what's going on in culture, or versus some lie that gets you what you want, but you gotta violate God's word to do it. Okay, so God has primary influence, he has primary authority. Third, God has primary control, okay? Now, this is important to recognize. We are not talking about unhealthy, to use a psychological term, codependency, okay? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about that, which is, you know, someone's presence, you know, is in our lives and then we just revolve around that presence. Like my dad's presence and his alcoholism, the whole family was codependent with him and his alcoholism. What does that mean? It means that we were acting and reacting based on his unhealthy, right, problem at the time, right? Um, that's not what we're talking about. When God has primary control, this is alignment, right? This is healthy. This is based on who he is, what he knows, what he sees, our experience with him. That's, that's a healthy dependency, not unhealthy codependency. Very important, right? Because sometimes people, you know, they, they can shift between the two. They can become codependent with religion, all right? And not just be in a healthy, dependent, life-giving, reciprocal relationship with their creator where they have experienced love, kindness, mercy, and grace, and they're responding to that, and there's a healthy exchange of relationship and connection, okay, where God becomes everything, right? Now, again, we have to, to see God for who he is and what our experience ha it has been with him and here's just a little summary verse as we close out that sort of ties all of this together in terms of God being the dominant force in our lives. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of those passages I told you to hold. Beginning in verse 15, says this, He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer 
live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So, we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old is gone. A new life has begun. Okay. Now, again, this is adding to the foundation. He's the creator, we're the created. A right view of God, right, brings a right life in God. He's been kind and merciful and loving and gracious to us. So my life should re reflect my experience with someone who's been that to me, right? They're dominating force in my life, right? And then this ties it all together, right? That's my experience with God. That's what I've received from him. And then this is what God's done for me. So I'm no longer going to live for myself, the Bible says. No, I'm going to live for Christ. He's going to be the dominant force in my life. Why? Because he died and was raised again for me. All right? So that's how I evaluate myself, myself in relationship to God, myself in relationship to others. It means that I belong to him, and if I belong to him, he's the dominant force. The old person that I was before encountering him, that's got to go. Why? Because there's a new sheriff in town who has taken over control, and he has influence, authority, control, and command in my life. So here's the headline for that fact. The greatest sacrifice for me becomes the dominant force for me. Whoever sacrifices the greatest and the most and gives up what is uniquely theirs. In this case, their life for your eternal life. That sacrifice becomes for us the dominant force for us. We, we look at Jesus and we say to ourselves, you would do that for me? You ever said that to somebody? They do just something over the top and it's so shocking. Like, wait, you, you'd do that for me? In our spiritual lives, we say that to Jesus every time we take communion and we remember what he did. In fact, he, he never wanted us to forget, not just his person, that he's God and that he deserves to be the dominant force in our lives. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me, but he just like, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus, my friend, laid down his life for you so that you could have your sins forgiven, have your purpose for living, and have a home in heaven. And that sacrifice for you becomes the dominant force in you. And that's what the scripture says. So yes, to answer the question, he would do that for you. What's your response to that? Well, it should be, there's nothing that I won't do for you. Because his sacrifice for you was the greatest sacrifice for all time and eternity. 
and that is what heaven is going to point to. Heaven is a bunch of folks who have come into a relationship with God, and they realize that they realize at some point in their lives that, okay, he, he's who he is, I'm who I am, so I should humble myself before him. That's the natural order of things, creator created. But it's more than that. God has been kind toward me. God has been loving toward me. God has been merciful toward me. God has been gracious toward me. And that means that he's not a part of my life. He is my whole life. It's not an accessory that I compartmentalize and I bring out at the dinner table or one day a week at church. No, he pervades every dimension of my life, starting with my self-perception and then going from there, from my how I think about myself to how I think about others, to how I work, to how I live, to how I pray, and, and to how I do life. And in the end, I don't need to search for motivation because he died for all, that those who live should not live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jesus Christ should be for you, the believer in his person and work, the dominant force of your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for who you are. You're our creator, you're our shepherd, we're the sheep. You're the potter or the clay. You're the vine and we're the branch. Lord, we, we know that, um, that you are God and we are humble before you, God. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand because you are who you are, but you're so much more than that. Thank you for your kindness toward us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love and grace. Lord, we, we don't get what we do deserve because of you and what you've done for us, and we do get what we don't deserve, all your grace and all the blessings, the good gifts that come from a loving Father in our lives, and we're, we're in awe, and it makes us want to say thank you by letting you be the dominant force in our lives. And so, so we say yes. We say yes to who you are, Jesus, your God, and we say yes to what you've done for us in dying for us, God. And we want to send the message back to you with how we think about ourselves, objects of your love, mercy, kindness, and grace. And the results of your dying for us, we want to send a message back to you and say that you are our Lord the dominant force, Lord. You are Lord, Lord, and we are gonna do whatever it is that you tell us to do and become who you want us to become. So Jesus, right now, I pray for every man listening to the sound of my voice, that you would fulfill your intention and your vision for their lives and that they would be a willing partner with you, a humble one, one that that implicitly trusts and obeys in an unqualified way, not questioning, because of who you are, Lord. I pray that they would feel and sense your love and mercy and kindness and grace right now. 
as they think about you, Jesus, and you coming and you dying for them, washing them of their sin, filling them with a new spirit and making them new. God, we're so grateful to have you as the dominant force in our lives. We praise you and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, and God's men said, amen. So hey, we're just getting started, all right? If you like this, share it with a friend. Make sure you get the downloaded notes and be here next Thursday morning for part two of Dominant Force. We'll see you then.